0: In this podcast, we return to the narrative of Exodus. We've completed our examination of the priesthood, the tabernacle, and its services. and Now we rejoin Israel sitting at the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses, having gone up the mountain to talk with God, hasn't been seen for the last 40 days. The people are panicked. They're without a leader. And so... Instead of turning to God, they create an idol to worship. Meanwhile, back up on the mountain, God informs Moses of what's going on and uses this as an opportunity to test Moses and show him that he's still fit to lead the nation. I hope you find this podcast both interesting, challenging, and a blessing for you in your own walk. Welcome to Studies in Exodus. This series of podcasts is produced by Sephiroth Audio Productions. These sessions were presented at Foothill Bible Church in Lincoln, California. Your speaker is Pastor Jeff Cregan. Join us now as the class is about to start. To Aaron, the glory of the Lord was like thick smoke and a red fire raging in the high gorges of Sinai. It frightened him. He had watched his brother walk away from Israel towards the mountain. He had seen Moses, so small among the boulders, take a deep breath and begin to wind his way upward. A toilsome journey, a tiny man enfolded by heaves of brown rock, disappearing and appearing again on the wild escapement. Finally, Moses disappeared altogether. During the first week of his brother's absence, Aaron walked among the tents of the children of Israel, marveling at how quickly they could return to the daily business of satisfying their old wants. While Moses confronted the Lord on their behalf, the people were boiling quail and baking hard cake of clay, gossiping, napping in the midday shade. Husbands and wives were quarreling over trivial matters. Old people crouched beneath tent flaps, missing the very air of Egypt. The children wandered the alleys between the tents, grumbling about how bored they were. Aaron heard the smallest child ask for water, and then for the first time he heard his brother's name mentioned. Mother said, we have to save our water. Wait till Moses comes back. But I'm thirsty now. Be patient. When is he coming back, Mama? Soon, Rafi. soon. So it went for a week. Aaron shook his head over a people who could stand so casually upon such convulsions of the universe. In the following week, Moses' name was used more often. Where is he? The people said. Now they were growing anxious. They cast glances at the mountain and its unquenchable fire. What happened to him? We have almost no water left. Where do we go from here? During the third week, the people became angry. They started to shout at the mountain, Moses, what are you doing up there? Here's where your responsibility is. You brought us here. Come and help us now. The persistent murmuring of the thunder only infuriated them the more. Don't you care about us? Aaron couldn't tell whether they were speaking to Moses or the Lord. Have you forgotten us? The fourth week of their abandonment produced a genuine panic. He's dead, the people said. We're alone out here. Now there were tears in the camps of Israel. Little children watched with wide eyes as their parents groaned and wept aloud. Where is our God? Where is his pillar to lead us? Where is his right arm now? Some of the old people rolled over and covered their faces, hoping that they might swiftly die. No one was cooking. No one was eating now. No one was sleeping or washing or grooming himself. The universe had gone through convulsions. Heaven and earth had collided, leaving Israel lonely under the thunder of this solitary mountain. And now they knew not what to do. Aaron felt their agitation as a storm that was about to break. He could scarcely breathe. All the laws were gone. Bloody passion soon would destroy the people right where they sat, at the foot of the mountain. To be continued... So, some questions came up last week regarding this whole concept of being cut off, so I thought I would uh, just touch on it for a minute. I did a little bit more research, and the phrase is used, and it can mean any number of things. It can mean being put to death, but it could also mean being banished. It could mean being separated from fellowship or tabernacle worship. Basically, the concept was one of isolation, from the nation, whether it was permanent by being put to death or otherwise, you have to look at it contextually to understand probably what the most likely understanding is. In the ESV notes, it talks about it in regard to Passover, where you'd be cut off if you did not keep it. The notes say, the consequence of eating some leaven during the seven days is a person would be cut off from Israel. This suggests that eating leavened bread during Passover was a serious sin. Although being cut off as stated is a consequence for a number of violations of the law, for example, not being circumcised or eating part of the sacrifice while unclean or committing incest, the majority of the context where it's mentioned do not explicitly state whether this refers to an action that Israel is to carry out or whether it is something known and acted upon by the Lord. In the context of the instructions for Passover, it's possible that the addition of being cut off from the congregation of Israel indicated that Israel was to remove the person from the celebration of Passover if and when they knew the restriction had been broken. However, even where such an action may be intended, it would have been grounded primarily in being cut off from being represented about the person's state before the Lord, and this would have been a merciful warning against the disregarding the covenant, lest the person continue in such a state and be cut off for, oh, forever. Sometimes it appears that God's judgment brings about the offender's premature death. Yes. So basically, it's not, unless it's spelled out clearly that the person is to be put to death or that the person is to be cast outside the camp. If, it doesn't, if the passages aren't expressly clear, then we're unsure as to exactly what it means. From our perspective, it does mean being cut off from fellowship with the Lord, whether permanently or not, whether if they repented they were restored. If they were alive and still within the camp, like with this Passover violation, then they could be restored the following year. So it's unclear as to exactly what's meant. So, now let's pick up. So, after an extended period where we have moved away from the narrative by spending all this time talking about the priests and the tabernacle itself, we're finally moving back into the text specifically. And we're picking up, really, in chapter 32, after all of these discussions have come to an end. And so, I want to just, for context purpose, I want to go back to where we were, and just sort of summarize where we have gotten to up to this point in Exodus. So, of course, it's right now the Hebrews are at the foot of Mount Sinai not being really happy because Moses has disappeared. But they got there because they had started to move out of Egypt during the reign of Thutmose the I which is back in 1539 to 1514 when the persecution of Israel began. And we read at the very beginning of Exodus in verse 8 of chapter 1, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And so what happened is uh, uh, many years have passed since Joseph's family came into Egypt. They've now grown into a nation. And so the current king, the current pharaoh, doesn't know who they are anymore. And so the problem is the growth of the Hebrew people numerically from a family to over two million people has the government paranoid. And the government being paranoid means the Pharaoh was paranoid. And the reason was they were unclear of their political disposition. And so they were concerned if their enemies attacked them, would Israel side with the enemies and in effect you'd have two million people within their own borders who would be siding with their enemies. That was the justification for the paranoia. Of course, the benefit was, like everything, negatives and positives, the benefit was a lot of cheap labor. And so it was trying to balance that off. See, Egypt had great wealth. It was the power of the day. But God was concerned because the nation was polytheist. They worshipped many gods. It was not a good environment for his people to be growing up in. And Pharaoh believed that he was one of the gods and the power to be all power. And so he decided on a program of genocide, a final solution. And the fact of the matter was that it was this whole situation, and especially the idolatry in Egypt, that is why God is constantly reinforcing the importance of not practicing idolatry. Because you've got generation after generation who's grown up with it being the norm. What young people accept today as
1: normal, back in my day,
0: you know, when we had oil lamps and horses and carriages, it would never have even occurred to us. I mean, a big deal when we were kids is if you actually got to hold a girl's hand. That was scary. Uh shows you how far we've come. So idolatry was the norm. In the surrounding culture so God keeps emphasizing in 20 verse 4 we see you shall not make up for yourself a graven image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water beneath the earth they were not to make any images that they could in turn worship which was what was going on in Egypt Later, Judaism took the position that they made no sculpture or any artwork that represented any person or animal or anything because they said this would be a, that would be a violation of this. It was not. The whole point was you were not to make an object that then you would venerate or worship. And so all of the surrounding passages continually warned Israel against idolatry. And this is a real problem because what happens is we'll see the first time things get difficult they build an an idol and it's not surprising this is why God is so clear that you don't do this it's really difficult and this is where we have to be careful even as Christians to fall into the trap of accepting as acceptable and normal what's going on around us to such a great extent because we're used to it. we don't think about it it means we have to depend on the Holy Spirit to step back and think about what we're doing. Think about the world around us. Is this how we want to live? So we can't be too hard on them, because we struggle in, in more subtle ways with the same kinds of issues. And this is why they spent so much time in the wilderness. Of course, was you got a it ends up as a judgment on them because they're sin. But at the same time, you've got now a whole generation that's going to be growing up during these 40 years away from Egypt, away from those influences. But it's only one generation. And as you see very quickly when you move into the, into the Canaan, one generation wasn't enough to solve the problem. But that's the intent. And he's also using it as a training period, giving them an opportunity to work through the things they need to do. God takes time with us. I've been working with a couple of younger people, which I guess is most people uh, a couple of young people recently who are guys that are really, you know, I've got to be doing something for the Lord. I need to, no, you need to take a deep breath. The Lord is teaching you things. It's not, you, that you need to learn before you can go in the life, whatever. And patience isn't one of our strong points, especially in this culture. You know, everything now. And so the fact of the matter is, I encourage you, no, probably God will use you sooner than he did. Moses, who sat on the backside of the desert for 40 years tending real sheep and probably wished he was back there a lot of times during this period. Uh, or Abraham, who didn't even get started on his walk until he was in his 80s. You know,
1: Probably most
0: of us are not going to have to wait quite that long before God uses us. But patience, I'm not saying pray for patience. please do understand. But the other thing that they needed to learn was total dependency on God. When you're out in the desert and you have no way to get food, you have no way to get water, it does tend to make you dependent on God. And we don't always like being dependent on God. We know it's not in scripture. God helps those who help themselves. But somehow, functionally, we almost act sometimes as if it is. You know, I've got to solve this myself. And by the way, if I can't think up a solution, I don't think God probably can either. That can't be solved. And we do this. They didn't have a choice. Well, they grumbled a lot, but I mean, they didn't have a choice. They had to depend on God because there was no alternative, and they didn't like it. In fact, that's what gets them in trouble. while Moses is up the hill. Remember, one them, they were always grumbling. Exodus sixteen three gives an example. Would that we had died in the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt where we sat by the meat pots and ate bread up to the full. For you brought us into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Okay, in other words, we were slaves, but it was still better. You could go to El Pollo Loco or Jack in the Box or whatever. At least we had a lot of food and Pharaoh was trying to kill. But it was better because Moses, you brought us all the way out here and faced all the things we faced so we could die back in the day when we almost moved to Hawaii the first time, wanted to make things better for my mother-in-law by having her live near us so we could help her. And Her friend says, they're just taking you to Hawaii so they can put you in old folks' home." So she panicked and refused me. I'm sorry, if we were going to do that, we would have done it here and <laughs> left her. People become fearful when they feel they have to be dependent on somebody else. Even if that somebody is God, we do it. And so they missed the food. They missed the security of Egypt, even though they would have continued as slaves. See, the known, and here's a principle from psychology, the known bad is often preferable to the unknown good. Can you give any examples that you've observed of that? Jobs. Bad jobs that you're afraid to change because at least it's a job, right? Yeah, and the woman was paranoid. She knew that where we worked, that they were out to get her. They replaced all the phones just so they could monitor the employees' personal phone calls. But she wouldn't look for another job because she was more fearful of looking for a job than staying where she was paranoid. Yeah, sad. Sometimes a a
2: change in church might be called to go to a different church. You like everything the way it is here, why would I want to go and be a total stranger and Mm -hmm. stuff
0: like that? But yeah. Kind of fear yeah. good women stay with Batman. Telling the truth to friend. Yeah, that's high high risk, right? Yeah, caring more about the relationship than caring about the person. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Basically, what we say is, until the pain of changing becomes le- less than the pain of not changing, people generally won't change. And even when it's bad. And so, Egypt all of a sudden is so appealing. It was so wonderful back there as slaves. And then what happens? It becomes irrational. You brought us all the way out here so you could kill us. Oh, that's. Yeah, right. Uh huh. I had nothing better to do, so I thought, why not? And all it takes is one person to say that, and
2: it's right.
0: Yes. Mob mentality. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing like working in a bad work environment where the morale starts going downhill. Then it doesn't matter no matter what somebody does. It's always going to get, be given the worst um, interpretation. Yeah. So, I mean, the bottom line is they're human. And the bottom line is so are we. They're exactly the same
1: kind of people we are.
0: So I've heard people say, well, if I'd been out there, I wouldn't have been kvetching. Oh, yeah, you would. Mm-hmm. Don't give me that. If we'd been one of the disciples, we would have run and hid. Come on, we're not any different. These are real people with real fears. So here they sit at the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses is up in the mountain. God is keeping them there. And I have a feeling part of the reason God is keeping them there is to test the people or to show the people It was here God gives them the moral law, the Decalogue, social order. They established the system for the tabernacle. Done all these things to separate them from the surrounding world, but their sinful nature overrides God's standards. Because Moses, and remember, they've only been out there for a relatively short period of time, so they were slaves, and now they're out there in the wilderness. God is teaching them how to trust. They haven't learned it yet. And by the way, when they finally get to the border of Canaan, they're still not trusting him, which is why they get another 40 years in the wilderness. So they're panic-stricken. What's going to happen to us? And so what happens? Not surprisingly, They get in trouble, because what happens when we start not trusting the Lord and figure out how we're going to do things our own way to salvage the situation? It always works out really well, right? So, they're getting restless. They act as if he's disappeared completely and left them stranded. Without him, there is no visible representation of God, which says something about how Aaron is perceived, doesn't it? Now, remember, he's been made high priest already at this point. And he's been the spokesman for Moses all along. But Moses has disappeared, and he probably isn't coming back. And so they have no visible manifestation, representation. It's like apparently while Moses is up there talking to God, the Shekinah glory is now sitting up on the mountain, of down by them. And so they want visible representation. They want a real God to worship. One they can see, so of course, considering their background, then there's a logical conclusion. If we need a visible representation of God, one that we can see, let's build one. Now, this is only about forty days after the account where God had appeared to the nation in thunder and lightning gave them the law, which included, "Thou shalt have no under god's before." and when and when they said, In Exodus 19.8, all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. Unanimous, the entire nation will do it. little over a month later, this isn't working. It's a little bit like I've heard people say, well, I tried Christianity, but it didn't work. Pardon me? You don't try, Orange. I think what you always said don't try, do. Uh, you, you either are a believer or you're not a believer. Don't tell me you tried it. It doesn't work that way. And so they tried it for 40 days and it's not working, so they've come up with a solution. And the worst thing about all of this, even worse than the fact that the Hebrews have seen God working and they've won an idol, is that, to me, the worst thing is that. Aaron goes along with the deal. And he acquiesces. Instead of standing, he doesn't try to stop them. He gives them instructions on how to carry out their requests. It's really sad. Listen, let me read, picking up in chapter 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what became of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings and the gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hands and fastened it into a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And Aaron saw this and he built an altar before it.
1: And he's going to be the high priest. Yes?
0: I think uh, the
1: Aaron thought, um, unless he does that, he can't control this.
0: Oh, I'm sure if you ask him, I think that's exactly what happened. He did it because the people were out of control. And he didn't know what else to do. Yeah. I'm sure that's his argument. But notice he doesn't even say, wait a minute, let's at least think about this. He just says, okay, here's how we'll do it. And yes, it was fear. But that's even sadder than the nation being fearful.
1: Yes? I don't think it's telling us there how long it took him to fashion this gold into his Yeah, no. and, and just thinking, they were in such a hurry to have a, a god, mm-hmm. right? How, how does that sound every day when they're coming to him? Is, is God finished yet? Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and
0: that's the thing. It's, the way Moses writes it, though, is intended to give an impression. And the impression it gives, we don't know how much time passed in this process, but the impression it gives is the people became careful. They went to Aaron, and Aaron not only acquiesced, but he immediately started. Because if we keep them busy, it's going to keep them out of trouble. Strange sense of out of trouble, but whatever. So let's just do it, right? Because the sense is, and the way Moses lays it out, is it happens very quick. It just happens immediately. There doesn't seem to be, at least in the language, any time passing. Obviously, a certain amount did, uh, but not much. And the sense he's giving is, this is the people immediately fall into sin. And Aaron not only goes along for the ride... But he facilitates it. And that's something we need to remember as believers is, you know, sometimes when we simply don't speak out, like you were talking about with a friend, and acquiesce and go along for the ride, we're giving permission to somebody to fall into sin. That's the message we end up giving, right? When we acquiesce. We need to take a stand. Aaron doesn't, in fact. Aaron arranged for the gathering of all the materials. Why a,
1: why a cow? And could it have been that it was a calf because it was little. It something small.
0: And- well, we don't even know how little it was. If you look at the difference in the pictures, we don't know how big this thing was. It was big enough for the nation to worship. Yeah,
1: but you could have something
0: that's big. Uh, not for two million people to worship. Well, not, not with all there. the gold that was given from all the women. For, because notice... The earrings were a sign of their idolatry. That was part of the practice within that period because we see back in Genesis 35.4 when Jacob found the gods in his wives' hands. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the terabith tree that was near Shechem. So that was tied into their practice of idolatry. So they gave all this gold, melted down and made themselves a statue.
1: So, do you know why in Cal?
0: Doesn't say. There were bulls, I assume, in Egypt as part of their gods. We know there was a, one. But the important thing to recognize, and what's so weird about this whole thing, is that he sees that the statue is manufactured. He sets up an altar for it, he arranges worship of it. Now, this is the high priest that's doing this, okay? And the people described the statue as a representation of God. So they would argue, oh, we're not building an idol. This is just a manifestation of God, the God who led us out of Egypt. He says, because notice, picking up in verse 34 again and reading it, he received from them the gold from their hand, fashioned it with a graving tool, and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, plural, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Okay, So they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up and played. What offering didn't they bring? Sin, yes. They didn't bring a sin offering. But he said... He made arrangements to worship and bring offerings as unto the Lord. So what he's doing is, well, I really, you know, okay, but I've shifted them. So at least they're actually worshiping God, even though we've got an idol here. It's a representation of the true God, right? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make no graven image. So even if it was intended in their mind to be a physical representation of God, it was still equally as sinful. It's idolatry. It doesn't matter what you call it. Yes?
2: I think it, when you look at this Aaron it's very fortunate that God didn't strike him down at that time. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yes. Is that, the, um, like, uh, because they just, you said they just came out of Egypt. Mm-hmm. So, and then also we're talking about, like, um, we tend to believe what we're familiar with. Right,
0: worshiping. exactly.
1: So, are they part of, like, a
2: Egyptian style worship?
0: Well, it sounds like their worshiping was sort of like what God had instructed them to do, but it was in front of an idol, so the style may have been not particularly Egyptian, but the fact that was worship was being given to an idol was certainly consistent with what they'd grown up with, absolutely. This is a problem. We've seen this when Roman Orthodoxy has moved into some countries where there's been idol worship. and What, what do they do? They just simply say, oh, you've really been worshiping Mary or you've really been worshiping Saint so-and-so. So So they go in and they, in a sense, allow the existing pagan worship and throw on biblical terminology on top of it and says this is really what you're doing as a way to sort of co-opt the paganism. So the overlap, you see this in Latin America a lot where you have overlap between different kinds of religions. So, this is nothing new. Yes, it's impacted by what they grew up with. Absolutely. That's why this is the first thing they, they opt out to do. But it's... See, the whole point of this is it's not enough to worship the true God if it's done in a way of a total lack of understanding of who he is. This is why a lot of people who call themselves Christian... But if you listen to the theology, even though they may use the terminology, clearly are not talking about Christianity. We ran across this. You have to be so careful. Somebody was talking about, asked me about somebody so-and-so. So I go to their website and I look for a statement of faith and it all really looks good until you start looking into the fine print. And all of a sudden what you've got is another positive confession. Name it and claim it part of that movement that is so not biblical you know we're basically we control God if we pray properly he has to do what we call him to do well that's not God that's a genie in a bottle and I wouldn't mind finding one don't misunderstand because that'd be cool but the fact of the matter is that ain't God and that's the problem so it's not enough to say I'm a Christian if you have no clue what that means if you say, I'm born again and the Christ I follow is the son of God and the brother of Lucifer and God was once a man like we were and I'm eventually going to become a God. But I'm born again. Yeah. So this is what's going on here, you've got the influence of the older culture. But like I say, if anybody should have known better, it was Aaron. And yes, fear. But how can you be the high priest and represent God if you're going to let the people's behavior and your own fear drive your behavior? Sad. Some people, because they don't like that, want to go in with the language and say, it's not clear totally how much Aaron went along for the ride or whatever, but it's very clear that he acted in line with and encouraged and supported what the people wanted to do. In fact, he led them in it. And I don't know how you get around it just because you want to see him as the good guy. So, what a difference a human high priest is compared to our high priest. God didn't remove him for this. But the nation was in big trouble. Meanwhile, back up the mountain, we hear a conversation between God and Moses. Picking up at verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people. <laughs> no, not my people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn against them and I might consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Have you seen your people, Moses? Parents, did you hear what your son did today while you were work orgo? Not my kid. Your kid, right? He's my kid when he behaves. Imagine how this made Moses feel. You've got God ripping on him. Because of the way Israel's behaving. And God is doing some testing here. He's making some points. And you have to understand that when you read it. He says, your people who you brought out of Egypt. And Moses is like, wait a minute. This wasn't even my idea. We need my people. Oh, man. And then he's also said, what on earth is going on down there? And the fact of the matter is, can you imagine being up there and finding out they've fallen into a major sin and God's in effect blaming you? And God says, why don't we just destroy them and start over with you? And I wouldn't blame Moses for two seconds if he said, you know, I've been, this is really not a bad idea. This is not working out. Let's just wipe them off the face of the land. Let's start over. And he's saying their sin is so gross that the only thing that's appropriate is to wipe the whole bunch of them out. Two million plus people. The interesting thing is this is showing Israel wasn't saved because they deserved it. They are not the chosen people because they're so cool. They are the chosen people because God is merciful. And a couple of other things, we'll talk about in a minute. God saved us knowing just how bad we are. While we were yet sinners. Okay, but I'm not that bad a person. I mean, have you seen so? No. What is God's standard? Perfect righteousness. I'd like to see the hands of all those who live on Peninsula Without sin. That's what salvation is based on. And so the fact of the matter is, God says, okay, Moses, let's start over with you. But see, God made a promise to Abraham that he would not destroy the people. But God is saying to Moses, okay, let's destroy them and I'll start over with you. Why do you think God tells Moses here? What's he saying? He says, I have seen this people and they are stiff-necked. Therefore, let me alone. What does that mean? Do not plead to me about these people. Just leave me alone because I'm ticked off and I intend to judge them. Why on earth do you think he would have said that to Moses? Because we know he made a promise to Abraham. And he wouldn't destroy the people. So, what's going on here? What do you think is happening? Yes. Yes
2: testing Moses to see whether hey, God's a good idea and, and it would bring Moses' ego up or would it test his humility in uh, uh, remembering God's promise to Abraham Isaac and Jacob yep Ken.
1: I, I, if, if we start with the premise, God doesn't test us so that he can learn something yeah mm-hmm. he tests us so we yeah. learn something correct And and I see him saying, my people, uh, not saying my people, because he wants, same thing he wants today. He wants us to take care of each other. Uh, uh, And I I think he was leading Moses there when he said, your people.
0: Yeah, I think he is trying to get Moses to think because if they're Moses people which would be a fallacious assumption but if they're Moses people and he's fed up, which he is uh, justifiably so is he going to say yeah, let's just forget the whole thing these people are not worth it and let's start over because if they're his people then that's his choice he has the right to do that, doesn't he? if they're his people And so God is getting to think about, what was his call here? Was it his call to save Israel? Or was his call to be God's representative as God saves Israel? What is our call? Is it to our ministry and the fixing people or whatever we think we're called to do? Or is our call to be available, to be used by God to do whatever he wants to do? Because then the results and the consequences are not our responsibility, are they? And so, yes, he's trying to get Moses to think. He's trying to get Moses to think about what is his responsibility to the people, but more importantly, what is his responsibility to God? And God is saying if Moses were to plead for the people, God would grant them reprieve, so don't tell me anything. So you have a chance now to destroy them if you keep your mouth shut. And if you think about what a pain in the neck they are, you're going to keep your mouth shut because you're going to say, yeah, that sounds a good idea to me. I've had it. Those sheep for 40 years were easier to get along with these sheep. And so, but Moses doesn't listen to the Don't plead for them. Instead, he does exactly the opposite, which is the success. Because what does he do? But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? So he rejects the, appropriately so, my people that I brought out and says, your people who you brought out. And notice what his argument becomes. It's not about the people deserve to be saved, because they don't. What is his argument? Verse 12. Why should the Egyptians say, with an evil intent, that he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. What is he saying? It's going to be bad, God, for your reputation in front of Egypt. In other words, it's not about the people, it's about God's honor. And Moses got it. That's what's important. Because as he argues for God not to act, he's arguing not to protect the people, because that's a feudal argument. He's arguing for God's honor and God's glory, and that's the only argument that has value. While we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Is it about us? No. It's about God's love, God's glory, God's mercy. Isn't that the gospel? God is a God of love and a God of mercy. It's not about human beings' deservedness. And so that becomes a valid argument. Because some people say, well, I'm basically good. Well, do you keep your own standards? Well, no, okay. Then you certainly don't keep God's. But it's not about you, it's about God. We're all on the way to hell, but God provides a way to avoid it. These people deserving judgment, but God's glory is more important than their being judged about God's honor see he says it's not they're not my people they're yours and it's going to reflect poorly on you God if we don't find some way to, if you don't rescue these people from their sin because then they're going to say see he wasn't that powerful God he couldn't even save his own people and then he gets to the most important part, which he's reminding himself, and you're right, it's God giving Moses the opportunity to remind himself what's true. God he's not telling God anything God doesn't know. He says in verse thirteen, Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, and all this land that I promised you I give to you offspring and they will inherit forever and the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken about of bringing on his people he says remember most important thing the promises you made to Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob oh by the way parenthetically we've asked before this says that Moses and the people knew something of their own history how and how much or what, we don't know. But they knew who they were. And, we, and they knew God made the promises. And see, that's where our confidence is. Is in God's promises, not in our deservedness. These people were to be saved from total destruction because of God's promises, not because of their, how much they deserved to escape. We are saved from our sins because God promised if we accept Christ, we will not be judged that we are covered in Christ's Righteousness this is how we know we cannot lose our salvation because God is trustworthy, not because we are deserving. See, it all keeps coming back to who He is. Yes, Ken? We um,
1: very often uh, uh, things come to our remembrance and it is so out of the blue. You know, and we think, why did that come to mind? Um, when Moses comes to this place where he remembers this where did that what prompted that memory mm-hmm. I mean, he's in the midst of this chaos and you know being scolded and, and God saying oh just gonna and God didn't need him to remind him that's correct right. when we say it we hear ourselves say it sometimes and go oh yeah and I, I just think it's wonderful the way the Lord gives us what we need. David said, thy word have I hid in my heart. Mm-hmm. It, but we don't think about it until God brings it back mm-hmm. at his time.
0: Well, that's well, exactly how
1: God tested Abraham
0: when he said, offer up Isaac. Obviously that he had never had any intention of that happening. And he knew what, how it was going to work out. What he was doing is showing Abraham that Abraham so trusted in him he was willing to risk even that which seemed to be the fulfillment of the promises that were made to him. God does this to bring us back into perspective of what's right and what's not right. And yes, believe me, he had to remind Abraham before Abraham went down the hill what the issues were. Or it would have been a lot messier when Abraham came down the hill. Yeah. And so it reminds us that our confidence is in the Lord. Not in ourselves. And it needs to be. It's a reminder of what's priorities. And we need to be reminded of what's priorities. Otherwise, everybody's going to be running around. The world's coming to an end on Wednesday after the Tuesday elections, right? Somebody in the grocery store has been saying, you know, how bad things were in with the elections in Washington. I don't know who this person was. And I said, yeah, isn't it good that our confidence isn't in who's elected but in God? Because... <laughs> It better not be in this. I don't care who's put in Even if it's somebody you think is wonderful, I guarantee you once they get in, they're not all that great. And so, yes, God reminds us of these things so that we don't become overwhelmed by life. Remember, Israel, and this is what Moses is saying, hey, they're not my people. They're yours. We can't start over as healing as that sounds at the moment. We can't do it. It's not an option. Because it's about you, it's not about them. And it's not about us. Yes, there are times when we do a lousy job of representing God's glory. (laughs) And then we feel like saying, well, maybe you should just start over with somebody else. But it's not about us. It's about God. And sometimes the way God's glory is shown is by how he deals with us when we get off track. God's patience. God isn't done with me yet. It's okay. But when life gets difficult, when the guy says, my spouse is just not being what she's supposed to be and I know God wants me to be happy so I can... Excuse me. I've been looking for that verse that says God wants me to be happy. I would love to find it. I haven't found it yet. I find plenty that says God wants me to be obedient. You know? Hey, I don't care who you're married to. God doesn't says unless this and this happens, you better depend on me for patience because there ain't no exit clause. Do you want to bring God glory? And by the way, it doesn't solve your problems. Just make sure I... Disobedience make free you and give you immediate rest from a bad situation, but in the long haul, it just brings its a whole new set of problems. It doesn't work. Disobeying God never works. And it doesn't work for them. so, you know, Moses' actions about saying, no, God's glory comes first. And this is, we've got to deal with this from God's perspective. In a sense, I think, is reminiscent of Christ in the temple in Luke 19, 45, 46. And he entered the temple and began driving out those souls, saying, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. The only time we see Jesus getting angry is when... When his father is insulted one way or another. It's about the glory of God. And that comes first. Whatever that means. If that means telling your friend, hey, you present as a Christian and you're really not doing what you're supposed to be doing and you lose him as a friend, then you lose him as a friend. But we've got to do what God's called us to do. In love, I gonna, in love, you know, it doesn't mean we have the right to jump all over him with hobnail boots and beat him up. We've got to do it in love. I've seen too many people do it without love, and that's equally destructive. And disobedient, by the way. So Moses was qualified to take the necessary steps to bring the people into a restored relationship with God. So he becomes concerned for God and for the people, which is why he is a type of Christ. He is a mediator between the two. When he comes down, he, he shows a lot of anger, but it's because, one, they've insulted God, and two, because they're in danger. Because they've insulted God. Romans 5, 1, Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It'd be certainly nice to stop there, because some people have a real problem with that one verse. And we run across these every so often in Scripture where it says that after Moses is finished talking in verse 14, and the Lord relented from the, uh, from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. It's an interesting word. Uh, and God changed his mind. The fact of the matter is that God talks about himself in anthropomorphisms at times. He uses language that is a way of understanding of him. But the fact is, some, that sounds like if Moses had gone along with it, God would have gone ahead and judged the movie because Moses, Moses got God to change his mind. That strikes me as those people who pray to Mary because she can get her son to do what they want her to do, uh, even if Jesus doesn't want to do it. I'm sorry. It doesn't work that way. What it's saying is God relented. In other words, he said to Moses, yes, we won't judge him because of what? Two things. One, he already knew how Moses could respond. So this was a test about Moses. It was now I will not act because you have recognized what the issues are. So it looks like God has changed his mind. What he is saying to Moses is, see, you've got the perspective, so I won't judge them. It's just like when the angel came and stopped Abraham from killing Isaac. God never had any intention of letting that happen. But the fact is he had to let Abraham go almost to the point of bringing down the knife to show Abraham where his priorities were. And so I know my favorite Old Testament prophet, my favorite commentary is the Paranoid Prophet, which was written by Jonah's therapist after Jonah went through everything he did. And Jonah is up there griping at God. He says, you know, the whole reason I didn't want to go to Nineveh and I didn't want to preach. This is after having the most successful revival service in the entire history of the <laughs> world. It's because I knew you were going to let these people off the hook. And I just knew you weren't going to destroy them. And I wanted them destroyed. God you know, saying, oh, yeah, your parties are really messed up. <laughs> and if you know the history at the time, you know that Jonah had good reason to want the Ninevites destroyed. I mean, he had good cause and he really knew God's character he knew that if they repented God wasn't going to destroy them and he wanted them destroyed that's why he kept not wanting to bring them a message to save them because he wanted them destroyed did God just change his mind about destroying them? no, they turned to him the natural consequence of rejecting Christ is eternity in judgment the natural consequence of accepting Christ is salvation and eternity in God's presence and God desires that none should be lost God didn't change his mind. God didn't destroy Israel because Moses understood the issue. Moses put the screws to God and God forced him to change his mind. That's ridiculous. But that's how some people, if you you read it out of context of the scripture as a whole, you could come to that conclusion, couldn't you? That's the problem with cherry-picking verses. The great teaching here is that God keeps his word. God made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he keeps it. And to those that think the church has replaced Israel, God keeps his word to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The church cannot replace Israel because then God would be guilty of not keeping his word. God will restore Israel because he promised he would. God will establish his kingdom on the throne of David because God promised he would if we can 't trust God to do that, we can 't trust him to keep our salvation either, can we? This is the problem i don 't care what your prophetic system is. this is the problem if you start rewriting scripture and start putting the church back into the Old Testament is you're basically calling God a liar, and then what is your confidence in him? So how one handles scripture does matter because of what it says about God, not what it conclusions it draws to support our systems. And so, God keeps His word. God's nature is unchanging. God, we can have total confidence in Him. God always keeps His promises. Romans 6.23 And so we know we are saved. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God Is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a promise that we can trust Him for. See, the other problem when you read verses like that, God repented, is that we can't judge God's perspective based on our circumstances. God sees things different than we do. See, the people were fearful because Moses was gone. That wasn't unreasonable, by the way. You're sitting down there. It's now going on, you know, five weeks. It's. I'm not saying it's not stressful. Where's the food coming from? Where's the water coming from? Moses represented... And see, this is part of the problem. Moses represented God's spokesman, which God made him. But what had happened, and maybe the people needed to understand that, was that their trust was in who? Yes. See, this is the problem. Their confidence wasn't in the Lord, their confidence was in Moses. What happens in the one pastor church that gets to have five thousand people when he finally retires?
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: One of the things I really appreciated about Red Steadman back in the day in Peninsula Bible Church was he did not need to be in the pulpit. There were all the time. There were five different men that were capable of coming up covering that pulpit, and as he started and they would rotate him he had it most of the time but they rotated him and started shifting and people didn't even realize and by the time he retired in a sense nobody noticed because he was totally comfortable when we tried to hire a pastor that was one of the multitudinous pastors on staff of a well-known large church that is part of our association we we found out that the main pastor who were named because we all know who he is never would let anybody into his pulpit. So none of the any of those multitudinous pastors never got an opportunity to preach. Which became a problem when we wanted to die. And it's like and so what happens when that person finally retires? It'll be interesting to see, because they're still there. The people's confidence wasn't in God, it was in Moses, yes. Uh, church I grew up in, we had a
2: pastor there for many, many years. And when he finally left, what it wound up causing was causing the church to split. Mm -hmm. Because there was one group that was loyal to Pastor Mattingly, while the other group was uh, loyal
0: to whoever the
2: Lord put in as the new pastor.
0: Well, and it is hard to be the new pastor following somebody that's been there forever. Especially if that person retires because the pastor emeritus is still there. (laughs) Which I've seen happen. And then that's really tough, let me tell you. But the fact of the matter is that, bottom line, we need to do what's right because it's right. They needed to be obedient because that's what they're called to be, regardless of the circumstances. And we are called to be obedient because it's the right thing to do. Not because we'll benefit or because it seems so reasonable or because it's expedient, but simply because it's right. James says in James 1.25, But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer, but forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. In other words, the bottom line is we do the right thing because it's the right thing, period. And if they had remembered that, they wouldn't have to deal with an angry Moses coming down the hill, as we'll see next week. So, here's how Moses feels about God's eternity and man's transitoriness in his psalm, Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth or even you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. You return man to the dust and say, return, old children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. Satisfy in the morning with your steadfast love And we may rejoice and be glad in all our days Make us as glad for as many days as you have afflicted to us And for as many years as we have seen ill Let your work be shown to your servants And your glorious power to their children Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us And establish the work of our hands upon us Yes, establish the work of our hands